Rebecca, this is your Jimmy, show. This is I'm your running. show on my show, but it's your show on my channel, but it's your show. Right. It's like The Matrix. It's like The Matrix. It's mm -hmm. very Inception-y. It's a show within a show within a show. Um, so people have been on this ride with us for the last couple of weeks, been releasing different shows on this media network thing, but really it's just me connecting with other people who have smart ideas, insight, knowledge, passion about different little nooks and crannies in the profession. And we've had you on the show. We did, we had you on the show in niche Vember because yep. your niche is what? Emergency department, physical therapist practice. And like, like very passionate. If I put you in a room with 10 other PTs by an hour later, they'd all know so much because you'd just be like, I'm going to tell you. Absolutely. Because we have the best job ever. I know. So you do lots of different things. You have a podcast. It is called? In the ED Now. All right. So they can subscribe to it. We want them to. We're just stealing an episode from you. And we're going to give you a little taste test uh, today. But you do other things too, which is you, you, you what? You, you, because you go and you teach other things about this in different ways. Who do you teach? What do you teach them? So I teach physical therapists who want to be excellent at practicing in the emergency department. That's, I think that's the bottom line. There are different ways that I do that, whether that's a course on how to start a program, whether that's a course on how to make your program better, whether that's content on like, what is vestibular best practice? Now, how do I take that best practice and make it realistic practice in the emergency department? So all of that, I also have a book on emergency department physical therapist practice. So people can just read the book and then hopefully get going. So lots of different ways. I give lectures about the topic to PT students so that they can hear that there is more to physical therapist practice than four walls in a clinic or yeah. gate belts in a hospital. And that's, one of the things I love to do the most is just share a little bit about how we can get closer to our patients more effectively in different settings. Love that. Like quite literally, I would like you to be introduced at a talk sometime soon and someone can say she quite literally wrote the book on it because you quite literally have a book on Amazon about it. Yeah. Top of scope, the emergency department physical therapist handbook. Perfect. All right. So in the ED now is the podcast. That's what people are going to get to taste today with you. Give them a little teaser. Give them a rate. We call it a forward tease in radio. What are they about to listen to? What are they about to learn? Uh, well, we're going to kick it off with Dr. Andy Wicks for trauma-informed care because number one way to approach patients in the emergency department is from that lens. Perfect. Is there a moment that stood out to you that you're like, yeah, that was kind of fun when you talked to Andy? Anything that comes to mind? I think it was the moment when he talked about how we have to treat our patients like humans who have everything that come with being a human. It's a lot. Yeah, not just like a joint or a low back pain, but like everything that walks in the door with them, their history, their lived experience, their trauma, their future, their past, all of that together. And that we can't make a treatment plan without experiencing, knowing, and seeing that. All those things. Perfect. All right. So in the ED now, I want you to introduce it. Uh, it's your show. Uh, kick it off. Take it away. How would you, how do you forward tease this? Give it a rip. Uh, they, in the ED Now is a podcast designed to make you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. And whether you practice in the ED now, you'll still find value because we have experts from every field of physical therapy coming in to give you little nuggets that will Im impact your practice no matter where you are but specifically in the emergency department. So if you want to be top of scope and expand your mind a little bit, this is the podcast for you. Let's go. Let's go. Full send. Yeah. But to recognize that your patient is not a diagnosis, your patient is not a chart, your patient is a person 
who has hopes and dreams and garbage and all the stuff that every one of us brings into it that comes in right into that treatment room with them. They don't, they don't leave it out in the lobby. They don't leave it in the car. It's there right in the room with them. And if you don't recognize it and address it, you're, you're treating only something. You're treating a piece of a puzzle and not the puzzle. Welcome to In the ED Now, a podcast that makes you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Griffith, the EDDPT. In today's episode, I talked to Dr. Andy Wicks about trauma-informed care. Listen, if you're practicing in the ED, you need this content. We know that all of our patients are likely carrying trauma. What we may not know is how to identify that, how to provide them the best care that we can, and how to make sure they get the best follow-up care. Dr. Andy Wicks has that information and uses his tall voice to deliver. I hope you'll join the episode in the ED now. All right, Andy, welcome. You are in the ED now. It's so oh nice boy. to have you. Thanks. Good to see you again. You too. So tell us your story. Tell us why we're here and what we're talking about today, because you and I have had a lot of conversations about so many different things that could apply to the emergency department. But one thing that you mentioned to me was trauma-informed care. And all I could think about was, oh, like that's the emergency department. That's what we do. So how can we <laughs> how can we get better? And how did you come to realize that this was an important part of patient care? Uh, yeah. And we, and we probably should qualify by saying trauma is a to use the word trauma is a huge umbrella term. And not to say that any one term is more accurate than another, but but be careful when you just use trauma to make sure that you maybe qualify it a little bit. Um, Helpful. Yeah, because physical trauma, like polytrauma, someone got into a really bad car accident. Yeah, that's, that's, that's trauma. But there are other flavors of it that might not manifest themselves in the emergency department, but they sure will later. Um, or we'll get into that. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Um, but anyway, my story. Wow. I am a PT, which is, I think, maybe a requirement for getting on this podcast. I don't know. Nah, we're just nah. here to make we're just here to make PTs in the emergency department excellent at what they do. So we'll take yeah. all comers. Fantastic. Um, I until recently was a clinician in the neuro rehab sphere and have recently moved into academia. And That's the office. Hence the ukulele back there. Um, and uh, one thing that has really been interesting to me over the last couple of years is the this concept of trauma-informed care, which wasn't something, wasn't a term that I was familiar with until, yeah, until recently. And it is in a very large nutshell, and I'm going to oversimplify this a lot, but it is essentially the practice of recognizing the effect of past trauma on your patient and how it can manifest itself into their everyday interactions and, and their ability to interact with the world, but also, I think more specifically to us, into that healthcare relationship, that, that caregiver-patient relationship. And that if you as the clinician don't take into account that past trauma, you're going to have worse outcomes. You're going to your treatments are going to be less effective uh, at best, and at worst can actually be harmful if you if you're ignoring that aspect of what the patient has gone through. I mean, that makes sense to me. It is. It's not. It's not like groundbreaking stuff when you think about it. It's just stuff that maybe we haven't thought of in those terms yet. I think the other question 
or realization I've had is that it's it's much more common than we think. Oh yeah, yeah yeah yeah. Uh, and it's the 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 thing that I that I talk to my students when I talk to them about this. It's not if you treat a patient with trauma, it's when. And you probably already have if you've had any sort of clinical experience. You have probably treated someone with trauma, and this can be physical, this can be mental and emotional, spiritual, psychological, sexual. There's all different varieties of what trauma is, and some of the things that that define trauma. And a lot of the definitions that I take, I'm gonna I, I take from uh, SAMHSA. The oh boy. Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, part of the Department of Human Health, Health and Human Services. Um, trauma involves three things. It is uh, a, an event or events. So it can be one thing like a car accident, but it can be a series of, let's say, someone who was abused as a child over the course of years. Okay? It is also that patient's experience with it. So what is traumatic to one person isn't necessarily traumatic to another. And that mm. level of trauma isn't the same. So even if, if Rebecca, if you and I had, if we both happen to be involved in a car accident, that if you could on paper make it exactly the same, our reactions and experiences of it would be would still be different. So you can't always assume that what was traumatic to one person will translate to another. And I think more importantly, if your perception of it was, well, that shouldn't have been that bad. That wasn't, you know. Just a fender bender. No one got hurt, but to the person in the accident, it might be very, very traumatic for whatever reason. And then finally, the uh, the adverse effects that follow that event, which can be acute, but also chronic and lifelong lasting, um, that really are are just messy, messy things. While we're talking, I'm trying to pull up some resources so I can actually make sure I'm speaking coherently about some of this stuff. Well, when you just said that about like our perception of whether something is traumatic or not can like inform, I think, how we treat patients. And I see that a lot in the emergency department, right? Because I, I would argue to a certain extent, most people who work in the emergency department have experienced trauma as part of their job. Like yes. see things, hear things, are involved in things that, that will stay with us uh, at varying degrees forever. And I think to a certain extent that can make people a little jaded or a little, um, they might disregard other people's trauma. So one thing, mm -hmm. some things that we might hear often, well, I don't know why they're even here. This is not a big deal. Or, yeah. oh my God, they only have back pain. Or like, you know, those are the kinds of things that I hear. Or like uh, some, I, I even had a patient say to me yesterday, well, I hear people complain about X, Y, Z. And I'm like, well, I have this problem all the time. You can't even compare. And I just thought that is kind of a harmful attitude and, and definitely a very harmful baseline for us to start from, especially when one of the main things that we need to do is reassure our patients in this setting so that we don't add to the trauma. Oh, yeah, 100%. So how... I guess my first question for you is how do we tackle that bias? Like how do we break that down? So we're not immediately just assuming that we know how traumatic something is for somebody. So I'm going to quote Ted Lasso erroneously quoting Walt Whitman by saying, be curious, not judgmental. Hmm. Famous scene in a Ted Lasso episode where he quotes that he attributes that quote to Walt Whitman. From what I can tell, Walt Whitman never actually said it. It's not the point. Point is that People who are judgmental versus people who are curious. People who are judgmental have already made up their mind about 
X and are now casting their own opinions and judgments upon it. So using your example of why they just have back pain, what's the big deal? They've already decided back pain isn't a big deal. Instead of saying, wow, they're only presenting with back pain. I wonder why this is such a huge deal. They're now being curious and trying to think, oh, maybe there's more that I don't know. Maybe this back pain has, maybe, yes, maybe they just, you know, fell, slipped on some ice and fell and hurt their back. But this feels to them just like when they were rear-ended in a car accident where they saw someone die years ago that who i mean i'm making up an example but yeah if you don't take that time to figure out why why they are reacting the way they are you miss the point you're not going to be able to provide good care for them yeah. okay so that to me is a big part of it if if you have already being curious you're going to be a bad clinician I think you're absolutely right. Like, I'm just like sitting here, like thinking about all these times in my uh, career where I probably could have done better instead of just making assumptions before I even walked in. And that's oh, yeah. Oh, I yeah. I, I am. I am there as well. Yeah. And, and I think that's the other thing, too, when sometimes we think about preparing our colleagues to walk into a room and we think we're doing them a service by telling them something about the patient. Um, in some cases it's valid, right? Like I've had people throw things at me or spit at me or things like that. And I, it's helpful to know that going in, like if I'm not going to be safe in that room, but I'm thinking of instances where people are like, Oh God, good luck. Or the person's just drug seeking, or they're just whining. There's nothing wrong. Or like get them a sandwich, like, and, and, and not just in the emergency department. I can think of like, any setting I've worked in where people are like pre-filling your context of this patient before you even enter the room. Confirmation bias. Yes. And so then I walk in and I'm like prepared to do battle with this patient or prepared to like completely change my treatment approach. And I've lost that curiosity because somebody's already filled in the space for me. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right in that there are, there are safety concerns where it is appropriate, but I would even back that up to say that, that every behavior that you're seeing, in my opinion, this is only my opinion, I can't attribute this to any sort of research or this is just anecdotal, it's my own experience, that any behavior like that that you're seeing to me is really, they're seeking something. And, yes. and, and this is the only way that they have to, to get what they want. Yes. No one's listened to them. No one has given them the the time or the attention or whatever it is that they think that they need. And so what do they do? They, they ratchet it up to a higher level of degree until someone pays attention to them, until someone takes the time to, uh, to figure it out. Do you know, you know, Deborah, uh, Deborah Sheldon? Yes. Okay. Deborah is, I, I interviewed her along with you on my other podcast and she has some great, just great stories about working with her patients, which is a lot of chronic pain stuff. And I, I used uh, I use a tweet of hers with permission in one of my presentations that I talk about trauma informed care because it's I think it's a fantastic example of if you are not curious that you're going to miss the boat. So this is a conversation that she's reporting, uh, and she works in a, in a in an area of Chicago where most of her patients speak Spanish. And so she often uses an interpreter and 
she's talking about this patient who the script said fibromyalgia. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I think fibromyalgia is a diagnosis that the PT sees has a lot of stigma attached to it. It does. Yeah. And, and, and already kind of prepares your brain in a way that may or may not be helpful, but yes, I'm, too late. I'm, I'm already like, Oh gosh, I can see where this is going. Yep. This is So Devra asks the patient, when did your pain start? And the patient says in August, Deborah asks what happened in August? The patient says, I moved from a second floor apartment to a garden apartment. So, so far, nothing that we've gathered tells us what's going on, why the back hurts. We just have, okay, there was a time and there was a precipitating, precipitating event. And then she says, why did you move? And the patient says, because my mother was deported. And that to me is an example of if you don't take the time to ask the questions and be curious, if Deborah hadn't done that, if Dr. Sheldon hadn't done that in that moment, she would not have been able to provide care, the right care for that patient. She would have tried to tackle this in some sort of musculoskeletal approach or some sort of maybe neuromuscular approach, maybe would have chipped away at the pain a little bit, but not hit the problem. I'm thinking of a patient who came in for a mechanical fall and was an older adult and had fallen in the bathroom. And so the occupational therapist and I were asking all the questions, right? Like, where do you live? Like, do you have stairs? Do you use a shower tub bench in your bathroom? Like all of these environmental questions. And I said, I see here from previous notes that your husband helps to take care of you. Is he still able to do that? And she said, no, he died three weeks ago. And she started crying. Rightly so. And I just left to the computer and I sat down next to her and I held her hand and I said, tell me about that. And she said, I haven't been eating or drinking anything for the last three weeks. I just can't even, I can't get myself to do that. So she actually had passed out in the bathroom. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, sure. and Dehydrated, lost malnourished. 20 yeah. pounds and her blood sugar was totally out of whack. But what, what the, the intake people had heard was fell in the bathroom. Like, let's get the physical therapist. So the intervention here was, let's get you some support. And so we got, first thing I did was order her something to eat and we yeah, sat exactly. and had some food. Um, but then we called the family and her children were super available and able to support her, but she, she couldn't even get herself to drink a glass of water, let alone reach out to her kids and say, Hey, I'm really struggling. Yeah. And I, I, I am so far into despair that I can't function. And so her children rallied around her. We got her connected with support group. Did she need physical therapy? No, I mean, no, not really. She didn't, but that like, she needed those, you. those questions about that functional mindset and like, how are you caring for yourself? That physical therapist ask. I think can make a difference in, in spotting some of that. So I'm really glad that that other story turned out well as well to find out yeah. like, what was the precipitating event. Yeah. And I, I, I think uh, a take home piece, and I think your story demonstrates it as well, Rebecca, and I know you well enough to know that this doesn't surprise me in how you interact with your patients, but to recognize that, and I think you working in the emergency department, you, I, you see this all the time, probably every day that you're in there. Yeah. But to recognize that your patient is not a diagnosis, your patient is not a chart, your patient is a person who has hopes and dreams and garbage and all the stuff that every one of us brings into it, that 
comes in right into that treatment room with them. They don't, they don't leave it out in the, in the lobby. They don't leave it in the car. It's there right in the room with them. And if you don't recognize it and address it, you're, you're treating only something. You're treating a piece of a puzzle and not the puzzle. So had you not asked a question, like had you not even thought to say, oh, I see that your, your, your husband has taken care of you. A great question to ask someone who doing a thorough chart review would recognize, oh, maybe there's a caregiver here. But then to recognize not only that of, oh my gosh, this, this woman's husband just died and she's clearly in distress in this emotional state and that you took the time to just sit there and be a human being with her. That was what she needed. She wasn't, you weren't like, I'm very sorry to hear that. Here's a Berg balance scale. And do you, so here's my question for you. Maybe this is an unpopular hot take, but when we teach students. About is there a the, popular hot take? Yeah, I think so. Like Jason Momoa is a popular hot take, right? Like he, I think there's popular hot take. It's maybe not a PT hot take, but so. I think you, I think you were mistaking hot take with just hot guy. Oh, well, okay, fair. I mean, valid. I'm willing to take that feedback. But <laughs> when we're teaching students the ICF model, Mm-hmm. I think the goal is we teach them to see patients as a human. Yeah. But I think where students and some clinicians get stuck is at the impairment level. Oh, we yeah. don't move past that. Nope. And also, I notice other medical providers don't move past that, right? Like yep. they're like, your imaging's fine, you're fine, but their function is not fine. And a- another patient that comes to mind was a patient with vertigo who, um, was Muslim and and couldn't get into her prayer position every day. Oh, wow. And so she couldn't pray. And then she also couldn't eat. And in her home, like the meals with the family were like the thing that brought her joy. So those two things were critical to her. Uh, but like, if, if you're not asking about those pieces of like, what makes this person the most unique person that they are, it's really hard to give them meaning in their physical therapy session. And in the emergency department, we still try to do that, even though our goal is for the patient to leave. But how do we get our mindset out of the impairment level so we can even begin to, to consider trauma and how it impacts our patient's function? You know, I've only been a faculty member for like six months, right? I know you're fresh and shiny and out of the box. And I think that that's just exactly what we need. We need like that right. new thinking. Yeah, well, I, I totally agree with you. I was there as a student and as a clinician for a long time as well. And I, you know, maybe it's because that's where we teach all the special tests. That's where we teach all the anatomy and the physiology. The and, that's what we test, and that's what we test them on. Okay. So can you blame the student for spending all their time focusing and studying on all that? Because that's what they get tested on. That's what the, you know, that's that's how they pass. That's how they become a PT. Yeah, it's, I don't have a solution for it. Because I would love to say, let's start at the function level, at the participation level, and work our way backwards. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think I would get a lot of pushback on that from, eh, who knows. The, the theoretical academic man would push back on that one. Damn maybe. Man. But because, and, and I don't want to say that the, that the impairment level knowledge is not important. It is vastly important. Yeah. If you need to be, if you're going to be a good clinician, you need to know your nuts and bolts about what's wrong, yeah. but you cannot stop there. And I would even say you cannot start there. I'm going to, I'll take that position. That's my hot take. Can't start there. Can't start there. Can't end there. Start with a function, dig down, work your way back, work your way back up to the participation level. How about so that? Maybe we need some flow. Yeah. 
instead of like this linear algorithm of how we approach patients. We need some yeah. flow. Because really when we do it, when we do an eval, what I like to do is what are you, what do you want to do that you can't do right now? Mm -hmm. Okay. And then, then it's my job to figure out why you can't do that. And then to figure out if I can help to fix that so that you can get back to doing what you want to do. Yes. So I have to start with that participation part. Because if I know that what you want is that you are a woman whose spiritual life is very important to you and your ability to, to cook and eat with your family is very important to you. All right. Guess what? I got two goals right there. At least How two goals. How do I goals. work my way back to fix How do that? I dig down and to find out why, why can you not get into that position to kneel? Okay. Is it because your knees don't bend that far? No. Okay. Oh, it's because you get dizzy getting that position. Hmm. Okay. Structures and functions and impairments. There we go. But if all, if all I start with is you're dizzy in certain positions. Okay. Guess what? Here's a little, here's an epley maneuver. Go see you later. I haven't figured out that this dizziness is, is preventing you from being the person who you are. And I think it also just demonstrates the impact you can have on somebody, right? Like when I did do the Epley maneuver for this patient, she was so profoundly grateful. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, like so had been so restricted and missing these things from her life so much that like for me, the thing that I did was this big. <laughs> but for her, the thing that I did was immeasurable. Yeah. So I think that helps us when we focus on that patient-centered goal as well. So back to our trauma-informed care. Ah, uh, yes. My first step, I'm going in the room and I'm curious. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things I ask patients is, why are you here? Because they may not be there because their knee hurts. That, that may be what they told somebody else, but why are you here today? Yep. Why are you here today? Gets me a lot of different information, but what would you suggest? Like we're, we've got a curious mindset. We're open-minded. We're ready to go. But then how yep. do I, how do I know? How do I identify these patients that have trauma and how, then how do I approach them? All right. We're going to go through a little bulleted list here. Bullets. Okay. Yeah. Running. So, and I'm going to go off the assumption that you said earlier that you need to assume trauma. Okay? Yes. What's in the emergency department? I don't think it's a, that's not a big stretch. Okay. Yes. First thing you need to know, and this is, again, this is coming from SAMHSA. Okay. And I can send you links to that stuff if you want to put it in the show notes, because it really is invaluable information that is publicly available and should be plastered under every wall. Create a safe space. Okay. Not just physically, but yes, physically. But be able to provide a, a, a scenario where the patient can move from that fight or flight or freeze to a position where they can be open to whatever it is that you're wanting to do. People in the emergency department, I can imagine, are in that fight or flight or freeze a lot. Okay. Sure. They're not there because they feel good. No. They're not there because they're having a great day. They're there because life sucks at that moment and they are in their sympathetic system is going into overdrive. And there is a psychologist that I have referenced. Uh, his name is Dr. Jacob Ham, and he has these videos on YouTube where he talks about the learning brain, the, the the survival brain versus the learning brain. And you can guess which one is in that fight or flight or freeze. Okay, survival brain is not interested in anything but survival. They're not interested in ambiguity. They're not interested in 
uh, you know, oh, it's okay to fail. They're not interested in new information. They want clear cut. They want you and move on. Okay. That's what the, that's what the survival brain wants. The learning brain. That makes so much is a sense. Happy, the learning brain is a happy brain. They want to play. They want to try new things. They want to, that's the environment where they feel like if they mess up, oh, I learned. Great. Okay. But I'm guessing that your patients in the emergency department probably aren't in that space very much. Additionally, beyond that is working with your patients to set very clear expectations about what's going to happen, what you want to have happen, but allowing the patient a say in what's happening there and giving them an exit. I think that's a huge, huge, important step that and now I, I will qualify all of this. I'll say that I understand in the emergency department, sometimes those are luxuries that you cannot take. When, when I'm guessing you as the PT, you're not in there saving lives, like stabbing a, you know, taking a pen apart and stabbing it in someone's throat as a makeshift trach. You know, I've never seen that happen in real life. I don't think it really happens. Oh. But, but the point is that to allow them an exit and whether that means to tell them, if you need to leave the room, that's fine. Or if you just want me to stop, I will stop. Think about for a patient who has been a victim of sexual trauma, sexual abuse. And if you are doing any sort of palpation or hands on that patient, and you have not explained to them what you're doing before you're doing, and especially me, I, I'm like, I'm six, four, I'm a big dude that if I, if my patient was someone who was much smaller than me and had been a victim of uh, sexual trauma and I'm the only other person in the room with them, the door shut and I'm between them and the door, that doesn't set up an environment of safety for them. Yeah. So for me to be able to say to them, here's what I want to do. And I'm, I'm going to tell you why I want to do it. I want to put my hands on your back because I think that there's something going on here and I want to feel it. But if you're not okay with that, it's totally cool. You let me know and we're done. And I will try to figure out some other way to do this. I'm never going to force my view on them this is what has to happen because I am the PT and you have a back pain and therefore blah, blah, blah. That's, that's not a safe environment for someone who has been traumatized. They need to have, they need to have a voice. Mm -hmm. okay? Be honest with your patient. Don't sugarcoat things. Certainly don't lie to your patients. Be very transparent with what you're wanting to do. If you are unsure, tell them you're unsure. Okay. Tell them you're unsure, but you know what? But I'm going to try to figure out the answer because I can tell this is important and I need to know and you need to know and I'm going to try to figure it out. Okay. Don't just say, mm -hmm. looks like it could be a lumbar strain there. Okay. See ya. That doesn't help. You know? And then, it, and outside of, a, of an emergency department, one of the things that I tell students is, that is try to be reliable and try to be consistent. So like, mm. for example, let's take a, uh, in an outpatient setting. If you know you're working with someone who's been traumatized, try to do things like, let's see if I can see you at the same time every time. Or if it's, you're only ever going to see me and my PTA who I introduced you to, and you already have a relationship with, and it's only going to be one of us two. You're never going to walk in and suddenly, oh, it's some new person that you've never met before. Okay. That you're, you're, you're being consistent with the environment in which you're interacting with them. That takes away a lot of variables reduces a lot of stress for the patient. How are we doing so far? I mean, I'm thinking about how I approach patients based on what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I tell people 
when patients come into the emergency department is, is I'm trying to teach one of my kids how to pump gas. So I don't have to keep doing that in the winter. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, what is step number one? And he's like, Oh, get your visa card. I'm like, bro, no, like step number one is turn off the car because we can't do anything to the car while it's running. So I talk to students and and other providers about approaching the patient like that, like a hot engine. Yeah. 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 And we need to turn off the car before we can open it up, put anything into it or take anything out of it. And so before I try to ask my patients to do anything for me or to allow me to do anything to them, I try to get us to a baseline state of regulation. Yeah. The other thing I do based on what you're saying is I do try to set expectations. We don't know why this is hurting. Sometimes the examination might make something hurt, but that helps guide us about what might be causing this. But I want you to know that you are in charge. And at any point, if we need to stop, you just need to tell me. And I'm not going to leave here unless you ask me to until we, we find some kind of next step forward, because the reason that you're here matters to me. And, and I want to help you. Like you came here for help. I'm a person who can help you with this. And here's why it's me. I also try to, when, you, when you're talking about this safe space, like all of these things that I've been doing that I haven't realized this is what I was doing it for. Mm. I get down very low. I'm not mm. tall. I am not six, four. I'm a little you're, person. You are not a tall person. You know, Andy, we only grow till we're perfect. And some of us did not take nearly as long as you did. So <laughs> I, I like kneel on the ground a lot. So that yeah. I'm at eye level with patients. I should just wear knee pads because I, I like to kneel on the ground. And people who work in acute care are like, ugh. Like, it's <laughs> that was my first thought. I was like, ugh. I know, but it makes such a difference. Oh, yeah. It completely and then, does. And yes. when, I, when I've been doing research, too, like that therapeutic alliance building, like if, if you can provide therapeutic touch to patients who are comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. So I hold a lot of hands. Oh, nice. Yeah. And I touch a lot of shoulders and the kind of the feedback that I get, like on patient satisfaction questionnaires is made me feel like a person, first person who touched me, things like that. And and so those are things that I do. I also don't rush people. Yep. And in the emergency department, and I would venture, I guess, in any clinical setting, it's very hard not to rush people. And yep. I remember being taught as a student. And in hindsight, I kind of shudder a little bit about this lesson, like hurry them up, keep them focused in the history, keep them on track. Don't let, don't let them go off on tangents, get them back to the point. Cause people would be like, Oh, and this all started in 1981. And I think when we hear that as PTs, we're like, uh, but at the same time, if you listen, yes. and I had a patient who, who told me she was there for acute exacerbation of back pain. But what she told me when I asked was I've this started when I was 12 and she was 25 and she it's actually, it's really pelvic pain that she has and not, Oh yeah. 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 Not back pain, which was kind of manifesting in some, some neurological ways. and, And people had just told her it was back pain. Like it's back pain. It's fine. Um, this woman's been suffering for more than half her life with this back pain that's really pain it was normal from and been been taking tramadol and oh my gosh um flexoral and like the, all of these things to the point where she you know she she doesn't know what else to do she's never been offered physical therapy before 
let alone a referral to a pelvic specialist. And, and, and she did need trauma informed care because there was trauma when she was 12, half her life that way. And just needed one musculoskeletal specialist to hear that and to look at things a little bit different lens to get her where she needed to go. So now that we've done those things that you said, we've done all of that. What do I do now? Like if, if I've now I've, I've set the scene, I have the patients allowed me to examine them and maybe even intervene with them. And I've built this trust. And now I'm like, we had a great session, but we're in the emergency department, right? I can't see them at a consistent time. I'm now like, peace out. You got to go now. What do I do? What do I do? How do I get that person to the next step? It's funny you mentioned that because the next step is support. Okay. Okay. So this is going to look different depending on your practice setting and what the patient needs. But we, so we as physical therapists, I think are very good armchair backseat psychologists, but we are not. But we are not psychologists. We're not. We are not. We are not. But we get put in that role a lot by patients and other providers. Like I'll have, I'll have physicians say, you know, they really need therapy. And I'll say, yeah, I'm not that kind of therapist. And they'll say, well, you're the best thing we've got, which is not <laughs> accurate. But at least I, I know how to do some therapeutic listening. So yeah. what do I do? I'm not prepared for this. Andy. Yeah. Like, tell me. And, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll get to that in a minute. But so this can look like. And I'll, I'll paint it in different pictures again, because most of the time when I'm talking about this, I'm not talking about it in the emergency department context, but I'm going to try to make this, try to make this flip here because I can do hard things, Rebecca. You can, we can do it together. We, got we this. can do it together. But this can look like perhaps you as the provider have a kind of set network of external mental health supports. Mm-hmm. If you feel like that's warranted, you might have like a, a list of like doctors, so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so work in this field. I've ref- I've referred patients to them. I have a relationship with that clinic. And I feel like if I call them up and say, hey, I have a patient here who I'm seeing for back pain, but I really feel like they could also benefit from some work with you. Make that connection. Fantastic. You could also utilize if you don't have that network established, and that's fine. It's it's not ex- you know it's not an expectation. But even to say if you have the time, like maybe we can look at some based on your insurance, some providers that are in your network. Now I would challenge you, don't simply like print off a list of providers that are on the network and hand it to them. Don't do that. Don't be that person who just finds the, you're just a channel. All you are doing is just getting the information from point A to point B. Instead to say, here's the list. Looks like there's, wow, there's 50 providers here. That's a lot. Let's maybe narrow it down a little bit. Should we look by zip code? Let's see who's the closest to you. Or maybe who's the closest to your work or something like that. Like help them make that step because if they've never worked with a mental health professional, there still is stigma around that. And so some people might not be willing to make that or don't know how to make that step or just, they just need help. And for you to normalize it, for one thing, to just say like, this is just another facet of healthcare, just like you coming to the emergency department. It's just like you going to the pharmacy for your medications. Guess what? Your brain is a part of your body too, and it needs help. Okay. Um, to be that person to, to help make those connections. It can also look like things like Maybe there are religious leaders or community leaders or other people in their sphere that can be a reference or a support for them. To essentially, if you acknowledge their trauma in the moment, but don't do anything as you send them out the door, 
you may have provided a small little light to them, but it's not going to last for the. Yeah, exactly. So let's find ways for that support to continue as they continue to heal, because that will, that's a time, that's a thing that takes time. And if we don't set them up for success that way, we're really asking a lot of our patients to, that I think is maybe unfair. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. We've already kind of talked a little bit about collaboration in terms of giving the patient a voice, uh, especially if you're in a setting where you're establishing goals with your patient, make sure that you establish goals with your patient, not at your patient. Okay. Mm -hmm. We've all done that. We've all, we've all made those goals that are the standard back pain, knee pain, shoulder pain goals that are just, Oh, look, these four will do great. No, make them. Make them important. Make them important to your patient. Okay, and if you don't do that, you need to get them to someone else who actually cares, and you need to take a vacation because you are burned <laughs> out. Okay. That's also true. Yeah, and then I think the last thing that I would say is just to recognize that a person's cultural and historical and gender identity matter into their trauma. Mm. Um, yeah. And this is something that for me as a privileged heterosexual white male in America, I don't, I, I, my life has not been a lot affected by this. Yeah. Certainly not like what some of my patients have dealt with. And I have, it's been jarringly eye opening for me when it's been brought to my attention of like, oh gosh, I have really had it very easy. I really have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with epigenetics, Rebecca? Yes. Oh, okay. So for the people who are not, and I am I am not an expert by any means, I am just simply a person who's repeating facts that they saw on the internet, but epigenetics loosely based is the study of how historical trauma can manifest itself through someone's genetic presentation. It's fascinating. It is. It is. It seems like magic uh, and it's fascinating. All this to say that, that, Things that have happened to truly to someone's ancestors can still manifest itself in your genetic code. Bizarre. And I think I think it makes the most sense when people talk about epigenetics in from like a like a believability perspective when we look at the adaptations that are made in animals. Yeah. Based on that. And which yep. animals survive based on the the genetic changes that were made based on traumatic circumstances. Yep. And so for me, that that was so eye opening. And when we talk about inherited trauma, it's not just it's not just a just a, a throwaway phrase. It's a real thing. It's a real, it's a, it's a, it's a real phenomenon. And I, I wish that I had the lifetimes to do PhDs and like all of these things because it's just amazing. you have a patient look like you okay that their cultural background their historical background their gender background may have impacts into how their bodies interact with the world I'm not saying that everyone who looks different than you is going to have this this is that's not the point of what i'm saying but it's to recognize that and i think again for me as very much the majority for me to recognize that my experience is not necessarily their experience then their experience is no less valid than mine. And if I assume that their experience was like mine, I will be wrong. 
and I will make a lot of assumptions that will potentially lead me down damaging paths. So for me to recognize that someone else's life, if I, if I just need to be mindful that their experiences are different and valid than mine. Bad way of summarizing that, but there we are. No, I think that makes perfect sense. Okay. So, so we've got, we've got a plan. We're going to be curious. Mm -hmm. We're going to make people feel safe and heard. Yes. We're yes. going to give them exit strategies so that they have some kind of control in a very paternalistic medical model that we have. And let's be honest, it's a, it's a frightening place. It is. Emergency yes. rooms are, are designed for, I mean, they're practical to the extreme, which I get it. I don't want to say that the design of emergency departments is bad, but maybe they could stand for a few houseplants. Yeah. Look, I can't even like speak up when somebody gets my order wrong at a restaurant. So I can't imagine like really being <laughs> an effective advocate for myself in a very frightening healthcare situation. So I think em empowering people, giving them some locus of control in, in a situation that feels completely out of control. And I also think that if we give patients that control and that permission to have that control, they then don't take control in inappropriate ways where you were talking yes. about how patients continue to escalate kind of like when we ignored what children need, right? Like they, exactly. their voice gets louder and louder and louder or they shut down and the interaction either way is, is ineffective. Yeah. So I think if we can actually empower patients to have that shared decision-making in that safe setting that we're going to be more effective. So I think to people who would argue that providing trauma-informed care in a place like the emergency department might take too much time, I'm going to I'm going to just assert that I think it'll be more effective and more efficient and probably lead to fewer revisits. I have nothing to support that except my own experience, but I think that based on what you're saying, I feel like we're going to be better clinicians if we take this approach. We're going to be better people. That's even better. Okay, so what do you want people to remember? What's the one thing you want people to take from this interaction out into the wild? That your patients will be traumatized. It's not if, it's when. And if nothing else, just be kind to them. Okay? And, may, and patient, may they not be traumatized by us. Exactly. Your patient is a human being. Please treat them as such. I so appreciate this. Andy, I've learned a ton from you on this. And, and I think totally actionable lessons that we can take forward and implement immediately in the emergency department and really any clinical setting. I think it's also been helpful to learn strategies that I can teach students to help get out of that impairment-based thinking and begin with the person and then kind of navigate our way back. Well, I'm, I'm glad to help. Happy to do it. Thank you so much. You are in the ED now and you're officially discharged. Thank you for listening. In the ED Now is a podcast hosted and produced by Rebecca Griffith, the ED DPT, as part of Rebecca Griffith Physical Therapy, LLC. Our podcast makes you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. This podcast is intended for educational use only and is not intended as clinical or medical advice. While we make every effort for accuracy, factual errors may be present. Since you've been in the ED, I'm prepared to give you your discharge instructions. Please subscribe, share, and find more at the eddpt.com. You're officially discharged.